So, our next speaker, Dr. Kenneth Sherman. Is Ken here? Oh, there you come. Okay, great. I hadn't seen you come down yet. So, he is the Gould Professor of Medicine from the University of Cincinnati. He's also the father of one of our ID fellows here at Emory, so he's given us a double blessing today. And he's an expert in not just hepatitis virus C, but in the other aspects of infectious and non-infectious complications uh, of the liver associated with HIV infection. And he's going to talk to us today about uh, HIV and liver disease. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate uh, the warm welcome and uh, the invitation from Mike and Jeff and Donna. Um, and for those of you staying, uh, I have two things to say. First, the liver is fun and interesting still. And the traffic on Georgia 440 is so bad that you might as well just stay here and not go anyplace. <laughs> okay. So today we are going to talk a little bit about some changing epidemiology of viral hepatitis, talk about a new hepatitis B vaccine, uh, be aware that hep C treatment in HIV infected is uh, not necessarily perfect in the real world, and uh, begin the discussion about NAFLD, NASH, fatty liver, uh, how and when we begin to screen those patients. But we'll start with an ARS question. A 40-year-old homeless man with HIV presents to the ED with mental status changes. He is malnourished, he has icteric sclera, abdominal tenderness in the right upper quadrant, and asterixis. Which of the following is most likely? And I think you go ahead and vote. So the majority picked decompensated chronic hepatitis C. Um, and uh, that is actually not the typical patient that will be presenting to the ED. Uh, in fact, in recent days, uh, the last uh, year or so through many places in the country, our biggest concern has been acute hepatitis A and acute hepatitis B. So let's start by thinking about what are the causes of liver injury and fibrosis in patients with HIV. Uh, the hepatitis viruses A through E are obvious and you should be thinking of them. Uh, the last speaker mentioned Zika in relation to sexual transmission but there is some interesting data and in fact the first clinical report of Zika virus 
presentation was a group of patients presenting with jaundice, so you can get liver injury from Zika. Um, NASH is a growing entity for many reasons, uh, the obesity epidemic, but in addition, uh, that uh, as we cure patients with hepatitis C, in some cases their liver tests don't go back to normal and we look at them and say, oh, what now? And is that my problem? And uh, the what now is usually fatty liver. And is it my problem? The answer is yes, if you're the one taking care of that patient. Alcohol continues to be an issue. It has to be uh, differentiated from patients with NASH. Many drugs are hepatotoxic. You have to think about them. Immune disorders, various cholestatic disorders like PBC and PSC occur. Uh, we have patients that go to the GNC stores and take way too many uh, vitamins, including vitamin A, and with hypervitaminosis A, we get liver injury. Uh, inherited metabolic disorders are also surprisingly common. The, the genes for both alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and genetic hemochromatosis are present in about 7% of our population. And while in the heterozygotic forms, they don't typically cause severe liver disease, when combined with other liver diseases, they give a much more severe picture. So this is a graphic over time looking at the evolution of liver injury in those with HIV. And uh, what we see is that, uh, that there are periods of interest and excitement at various times for different agents, different etiologies, and that uh, then we do something about it, we intervene in some manner, and those things appear to recede, but should not be forgotten. And at this point, the big ones coming up are hepatitis E and uh, NASH in discussion, and largely not on the radar is hepatitis A and hepatitis D, which is why I think today we need to talk about that some more. So we will talk about the changing epi, new vaccines, and HCV treatment, and for NASH, the recognition issues. Let's start with the hepatitis A. So in 2016, the CDC looked at the data, saw that for several years, the number of reported cases had been decreasing and arrived at a conclusion that, that pediatric vaccination was important as well as identification of patients with identified risk factors that uh, probably should get vaccination. And that eventually we will eliminate hepatitis A in the United States. Uh, but then something happened in 2016 and uh, as of 2018, in October, more than 7,000 cases were reported, and there's considerably more than that now. Uh, there is a high frequency of death in where I live in the Cincinnati metropolitan area. We've had 55 deaths reported as of a few weeks ago. Uh, I was on the liver service last month. In two weeks, we saw four fulminant hepatic failures from hepatitis A, and two of those patients passed away. Um, and I will tell you that, that I have been doing liver disease 
in similar populations for 30 years, and I had never had a hepatitis A death before. There's been also a significant increase seen in European cities, particularly among MSM. And this is just a bunch of the headlines going back the last couple of years to 16. I think many people heard about the big outbreaks of hepatitis A that started in San Diego and the homeless population. But uh, simultaneously, there were other outbreaks going on. There was a big outbreak associated with scallops in Hawaii. Uh, there was a series of outbreaks associated with drinking smoothies. Uh, there was southern exposures with people eating Murdoch's catfish. So there, there's a whole variety of mechanisms where people can be exposed in different settings. The one at the very bottom that says Terry DeMio and Ann Saker, that's from Cincinnati. They published eight things you need to know. And number one on the list was don't worry about it because this is not a serious disease. This is where the epidemic has taken off, the, uh, the shaded areas, and uh, clearly Ohio is in that, and Georgia is not yet in it, but there are a variety of other areas, and it seems to be spreading and talking to people in other places. I'm starting to hear about other outbreaks beginning to occur. So you need to remember to think of this and what the presentation is like. So there is asymptomatic disease without jaundice. That's, that's relatively uncommon. Um, there is symptomatic self-limiting disease with jaundice that lasts less than eight weeks. But remember that the average person, a layman, cannot see jaundice till a bilirubin is 10. Therefore, there are lots of jaundice patients with hepatitis A that are not classified as symptomatic self-limiting. They're being called, oh yeah, you have the bug that's going around, belly hurts a little bit, low-grade fever, some nausea and vomiting, and I just didn't feel like myself. That's hepatitis A. There's a cholestatic form where jaundice persists for greater than 10 weeks. And there's also a relapsing acute hepatitis where it looks like the patient gets over it and then it comes back. And these patients are frequently viremic. We've identified several such patients in Cincinnati in the last couple of months that were HIV positive and we can show that they were viremic in each of these periods uh, with what appears to be the same strain of virus. So it is not reinfections in someone that couldn't clear, it's they couldn't clear and this virus is in a relapsing form. And that often upsets people a lot because uh, particularly in the setting of HIV, when they think they got over it, in both cases, the uh, HIV provider took the patients off their antiretrovirals for fear that, oh, I thought it was hep A, six weeks ago, but they should be over that now, and they look like they're getting worse and their liver tests are going up again, so maybe it's something to do with their ART, I'll stop it. That's not what you do. Um, and then acute hepatic failure, you need to recognize the signs and symptoms of acute hepatic failure. 
uh, in patients who have compensated hepatitis C, we see the phenomenon of acute on chronic liver disease. So they were fine, they were compensated hepatitis C patients, and then they get hepatitis A and they crash and burn, and this is a very common phenomenon because the liver does not have the ability to, to withstand one more insult, and we see decompensation. Okay, turn the page to hepatitis B. There's a lot of things happening in hepatitis B. Uh, the biggest is a push towards cure, just like for HIV. Uh, a lot of agents are being studied. I am not going to go into those today. Perhaps there will be an opportunity to come back in the future and talk about that. But I do want to talk about something that's here now, and that is the first new vaccine in more than 20 years. It's called Heplisav B, made by a company called Dynavax. And it's different because it contains not only a recombinant surface antigen protein, but it contains an adjuvant called CPG1019, which is a TLR9 agonist that appears to significantly boost the immune response. It's effective enough that it achieves levels of response, of seroprotective response, and the titer that goes with it for long-term protection that is at least as equivalent as getting three doses of the standard vaccines that were used before that did not contain the TLR9. So it can be given as a two-dose vaccine. There is a three-dose regimen that's been studied in those with chronic kidney disease. It appears effective in that setting. At this point, there are no data at all in HIV-infected persons. And so it's not clear whether we should be using it or whether we will run into problems with a TLR9-based adjuvant in ways that we can't yet anticipate. The ACTG will be doing a study starting soon in the next few months to try and explore the efficacy of this vaccine and uh, if you have an opportunity to send patients to that, that would be great because that's the way we'll really get the answer. Um, it's also important to note that vaccine adherence is really not great. This is the, the first national survey of adults receiving their first Hep B vaccine. So not children getting vaccinated, adults getting vaccinated. It included over 535,000 people and they simply asked, did they complete the vaccine series that was prescribed? And you can see the results on the right. Um, the proportion that received the second dose by one month or four weeks after the first dose was slightly over 30%. And if he went out 13 months, the second dose was only given at a little over 50%. Um, the third dose, was back down at around 30% at 28 months after starting the vaccine series. So we as a country are not good at completing hepatitis B vaccine series in adults. And uh, this is another reason why a two-dose vaccine that is in fact more efficacious might be a big boon to be able to manage our patients. You know, of course, if you can get to three doses in an immunocompetent patient, you're going to get over 90% seroprotective rate with the standard vaccines. 
This is the Haplosav B uh, FDA approval data. Uh, the uh, dots with the error bars on the right show that uh, in three different cohorts, it was more effective than the control, which was the standard NGRX B vaccination given for three doses. And in diabetes patients, who are one of the groups that do not respond well to standard vaccine, uh, we see that uh, the Heplosav B did very well, achieving 90 or more percent, if they didn't have diabetes, 90% in the diabetics, with lower response rates in those who got NGRX B. Okay, next question. A 52-year-old man with hepatitis B HIV co-infection is seen in follow-up. He complains of increasing abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. His urine has become dark in color. He reports unprotected sex with men and women. He was recently switched to a two-drug regimen of dolutegravir lamb from raltegravir tenofovir emtricitabine in an effort to simplify, that was the words used by the, uh, by the physician that uh, was taking care of this patient. You are most concerned about which ones of these things, which one of these things? Please wait. Ready or not, Okay, that's fantastic. So 89% are concerned about hepatitis B flare, and that is indeed the answer in this case. Uh, in the trials that have been done to date, looking at simplification regimens, uh, patients with hepatitis B have been excluded. So everyone's safe. However, as that gets translated to the real world, that is not what we're seeing. And in just the last two and a half months, our clinic has seen referrals of two patients with significant hepatitis B flares that look like this. This is from an article that uh, I published with Mary Bessison in Colorado many years ago. But what we're seeing is exactly this, a patient who already had pre-existing YMDD motif mutations in their hep B from old lamb exposure is put onto a regimen containing just lamb or perhaps no hepatitis B active agent. And uh, we see a flare in transaminases, the appearance of anti-core IgM, the suspicion seems to always be, I think my patient has acute hepatitis B, except if you looked in the records, you'd know that they had hepatitis B. Um, if a patient has, for any reason, advanced fibrosis, they will get very sick from this type of flare and some proportion will die. So it's important that you think about hepatitis B in those patients as you think about simplification. Okay, hepatitis D. Hepatitis D is not something we've talked about a lot. It, uh, as you know, occurs with hepatitis B. It's the smallest known virus or infectious agent. It, uh, it's so small that it can't coat itself. 
but it happily uses the excess surface antigen produced by hepatitis B to be involved with its replication scheme, and then it enters hepatocytes using the same receptor mechanisms. So it's associated with increased liver disease severity in the setting of both superinfection and co-infection with hep B. And there's more rapid rates of progression and earlier cirrhosis. It also increases the risk of the development of liver cancer by up to threefold compared to those with hepatitis B alone. So it's a significant player. The geographic distribution is shown here, uh, thought to be relatively low in the United States and other places in the world where you see green, relatively high in Southeast Asia, parts of the Mediterranean Rim, and South America. Um, the problem is that we've begun getting reports initially from California that hep B positive patients had rates exceeding 8% positivity for hepatitis D. If we look at the guidelines, these are the current guidelines. The AASLD guidelines say that anyone with hep B should be considered for testing for hep C, hep D, and HIV in those at risk, which includes all individuals from HDV endemic areas and those with a history of injection drug use. Why injection drug use? Because there was a famous outbreak documented by the CDC 25 years ago in Massachusetts of hepatitis D outbreak and injection drug users. And that's pretty much it. And the response to that has been an overwhelming, people don't screen. In contrast, the EASL guidelines, the European Liver Association, says other causes of chronic liver disease should be systematically looked for, including co-infections with HDV and hep C and HIV, and uh, that is the routine screening done in Europe. And in Asia, the same kind of thing. All patients get screened. So we haven't had the guidelines for screening, and furthermore, until just a few weeks ago, we did not have the availability of hepatitis D RNA tests in commercial labs, which just became available in a couple of major national labs, so now you can begin to test for this. We did an initial screening project thinking about this. We identified in our clinics 1,007 hepatitis B patients. Um, of those, 155 were HIV positive and the remainder were hepatitis B mono-infection. In the mono-infected group, uh, 113 or 13.2% were tested for hep D and among those, 3.3% were positive. In the HIV positive group of 155, only eight were tested at all for hep D, and none of those were positive because they certainly didn't test very many. We then asked, who's doing the testing? And actually our hypothesis going into this was that the patients where this would be looked at most closely would be the HIV-infected patients taken care of by infectious disease physicians and other providers managing those patients. But that wasn't the case. Surprisingly, uh, internal medicine uh, had done a large amount of screening in general internal medicine clinic. 
and the gastroenterology hepatology group had done a lot. Um, but infectious disease had actually done almost none. So I raise this as a wake-up call that if you have patients with Hep B, it's probably time to think about screening for Hep D as well. Um, so the overall rate of HDV positivity, we also did uh, several hundred subject screening for HDV RNA in our lab, and it was 3.3% with a confidence interval of 0.9 to 8.2% on the high end, putting us into the same range that you was being reported in California. So we have now put this into EPIC as a warning. Think about Hep D and all Hep B patients, and we're starting to see a much greater response in terms of screening. I'm not gonna say a lot about Hep C for several reasons. Um, the thing that dominated the lives of so many for so many years is easy to treat with nearly 100% efficacy and many of us in this room are probably focused on elimination and microelimination protocols, especially among those with HIV. Um, but there is a little bit of a real-world warning. There's been two papers like this recently. This is from New York. The other one was from Europe. 350 patients, uh, including mono-infected and co-infected patients, multiple DAA regimens used, because this was real-world, not a clinical trial. And, uh, and it appeared that the patients, the selections of the agents were correct. Um, but the patients with co-infection had a statistically significant lower rate of response, uh, which this group in a univariate analysis was said was associated with detectable HIV viral load, higher HCV viral load, and lower CD4 counts. So I think that uh, it behooves us to not just treat patients, but to follow them up to the point of proving SVR, and especially if there are ongoing risk factors, to continue to screen those patients. Uh, in, in talking about reinfection, we've had a number of patients of late that have been reinfected within weeks of completing their uh, effective course, and uh, we are on the third or fourth treatment of those patients. Maybe not a terrible thing because we wonder whether they're super spreaders of some sort within the population that they're sharing needles with, but uh, uh, we're very surprised because they're coming back with different genotypes each time and uh, showing a wide diversity of virus and exposure. Okay, I'm gonna finish up in the last few minutes with fatty liver. So you have to start with what is fatty liver? Fatty liver, quite simply, is a liver in which 5% or more of the hepatocytes have fat globules deposited within them. And at least in a transient sense, that's not a terrible thing. If you, if you eat a fatty meal either at a nice restaurant uh, or at a, perhaps a Chick-fil-A, uh, you will end up within 24 hours with a fatty liver because because the liver is the transient processing storage area of the triglycerides 
as it then begins to repackage them, send them out into the body to other places, and if it can't find a good home for energy, it sends it right to your middle. So that's okay. The problem is when the fat remains in the liver for long periods of time. If fat remains in the liver for long periods of time, you have to decide, is this patient have alcoholic steatosis or non-alcoholic steatosis? And one of the things we still don't know is where is that line? How much alcohol can you drink uh, and still be called a non-alcoholic fatty liver? So there are conventions out there, 21 drinks a week or less for men is considered not alcoholic steatohepatitis and less than 14 for women. But that's a lot of drinks and there are purists that say that it's as little as three drinks a week for men and no drinks a week for women, sorry ladies, that uh, you need to really be able to differentiate. Um, but for the purpose of many epidemiologic studies, this is how it's done. So then you have to look at the patient and say, is the ALT elevated? And if it is, that's a, not just a fatty liver, that's a alcoholic or non-alcoholic. And if it's non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD, except that now all the millennials coming up in the field call it NAFLD because they didn't like the two syllables in NAFLD. If there's inflammatory reactions present in it leading to development of unique patterns of fibrosis, we call that NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So this is a spectrum of disease. You could have steatosis. Steatosis leads to NASH. NASH leads to development of cirrhosis. If you develop NASH, 9 to 20% of patients will develop cirrhosis over the next several years. And of those, 22 to 33% will go on to liver-related death or the need for liver transplantation. And about 8 to 7% or 8 to 10% in seven years will also go on to develop liver cancer because you don't have to have a virus to have liver cancer, a cirrhotic liver due to NASH can lead to development of HCC. We are seeing a change in liver transplantation reasons in the US. Uh, the top dotted line you see is beginning to bend down or curve down, and that's hep C. We are bending the curve on hep C. But the lines that are going up in the middle of that graph are ASH and NASH, so alcohol and and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And uh, at the bottom are the stable uh, things, other things, including hep B. So how common is NAFLD and NASH? Well, we don't know because it depends on how you measure it, but it ranges someplace for NAFL of 35 to around 90% and a little bit less, maybe a third of that overall for those with NASH. What are you going to do to think about this? Well, the first thing you do is if a patient comes to you with elevated liver enzymes or an abnormal ultrasound, which will frequently say something like, echogenic liver cannot rule out fatty liver. Um, 
you have to rule out hazardous drinking. And, and I suggest that you think about a somewhat lower level of 14 drinks per week for men or seven drinks per week for women. You need to do a full serologic workup to look for other viruses and perhaps metabolic causes. If you have access to a fibro scan, you can get transient elastography with CAP, which is the controlled attenuation parameter that gives you a rough idea of the degree of fat in that liver. And then what this algorithm shows is a series of stratifications based upon both the fibrosis, like estimated fibrosis level, or based on liver stiffness, and the CAP, the amount of fat present, of what you should do next in those patients. One of the first things you might be able to do is think about changing the ART regimen if they are not on an INSTE-based regimen to an INSTE-based regimen because there's some data that that could be helpful. This, this algorithm will be published shortly in uh, uh, topics in antiviral therapy if you want to look at it in more detail. There are many targets. There are no good drugs right now. The only proven drug is vitamin E, but there are drugs coming, and I expect we will see drugs on the market in the next few years. No major studies have been done in patients with HIV at this point. So in conclusion, liver disease remains an important consideration in those with or without HIV infection. Viral infections that were rare have become common again, like hepatitis A. Changes in CART management may require awareness of co-infections. Don't, don't go to a non-Hep B active regimen in a patient that you're trying to simplify. And NAFLD and NASH is a growing problem. We don't have a lot of solutions right now, but stay tuned. Things are coming. Thank you. Great. A um, couple questions. One is with the outbreak of hepatitis A, people who have been vaccinated 10, 15 years ago, do we rescreen them to see if they have detectable antibody and then revaccinate them? So the general feeling has been that if you've been vaccinated, you're protected and you have enough T memory cells to be able to manage that infection. However, there have been several papers and reports, particularly in the setting of HIV infection, where patients have either not developed a primary antibody or have lost their antibody. And then in these outbreaks, reports of uh, clinical infection that made it to significant jaundice and need to go to emergency rooms so we are revaccinating those patients. We did a survey in my clinic among HIV positive patients and only 53% had detectable antibody and we know we vaccinate those patients. Um, and uh, on revaccination, we tested again and it went up to like 95%. So though it's, less clear in terms of formal guidelines, I think it's probably appropriate to do so in high-risk patients. Okay, Andy? Uh, two quick questions, uh, I hope. One is, uh, what's the cost, the current cost for an uh, hepatitis A antibody ought to be pretty low. 
Uh, the vaccine requires at least two doses. Uh, what's the cost of, of vaccine currently? Yeah, so it's interesting. That's a wonderful question because when we started this outbreak, I found out that uh, my staff and my fellows who were seeing these patients had not ever been vaccinated. They were older than the group that got it at child or in early childhood before that was started. And the hospital deemed that it's not one on the list, so we don't need to give it. And uh, they went out to try and find it, and they were 100 to 150 dollars a piece at uh, local dose? per dose at local pharmacies. So, second question has to do with the outbreak of hepatitis A. Also, I got curious about this a few months ago and looked up the MMWR data. There were a few hundred cases. Um, in, in uh, California and Hawaii, and then suddenly it exploded in the Midwest. Yes. And there have been like 5,000 of the 7,000 practically, or, or most of them in West Virginia. And then they began, and then there was 1,000 each in several other Midwestern states. Uh, and it's just, it's a puzzling pattern. So I wonder, you know, that's, if it's in the homeless, so it's, it, it should be everywhere. So what's going on? It seems to be a combination of homeless and injection yeah. drug use yeah. that's bringing it in. And then people that are exposed are working in uh, places, fast food kind of places, not washing their hands well, contaminating food. So in the Cincinnati area, it was recent injection drug users working in McDonald's one, working in a deli, working in a Cadoba, and so there's a, there, it's then spread to a much larger population. But the connection to San Diego and Hawaii where it started, and the absence in New York City, Chicago, New York, uh, uh, Atlanta, and other major cities where there are plenty of IDUs, and plenty of homeless people, is just puzzling. It is very puzzling, and uh, the ones we've seen, we're right now in the process of sequencing, to see if we can compare them to the ones from uh, San Diego. Thank you. And um, thank you, that's very interesting. The, I think it's important to make that connection to fast food because if we can decrease fast food intake, we might be able to tackle NAPLED also. <laughs> so a non-responder to previous Hep B vaccination, should we re-vaccinate them with the same old vaccines or should we be using the Heplosav vaccine? So the simple answer is we don't know. Um, there have been a series of papers on revaccination for those who don't respond using double dose vaccine. So like 40 micrograms of the Endurex B vaccine and uh, with mixed results. The big ARNS trial uh, in France uh, that uh, looked at this did not find a significant benefit in doing so. That has been our practice in the past. That will be studied in the ACTG trial specifically, um, but we do not know the answer at this time, so. And then last question. You've successfully treated somebody for hepatitis C and now they come back in with another episode of hepatitis C. How do you know if it's reinfection or if you just didn't successfully treat them? In other words, a relapse. 
So it depends upon the timing, the genotyping, and if you have it available to you, the ability to do phylogenetic analysis, which is not routinely available. Um, if a patient has achieved SVR, 12 weeks following completion of therapy, I tell patients that is SVR, and I do not send that patient away. I tell them I need to see you back once more between six months and a year. And if the next time they come back, I test them, and they're negative, I now say you are cured. And, and I make that distinction because as good as the clinical laboratories are, there's still a several percent mistake rate, both false positives and false negatives, in making that call. So if they're cleared twice and then they come back with a new infection, same genotype, the assumption is after two negatives, that's, that's, not, that's a new infection. And if it's a new genotype, it's definitely a new infection. Okay, great. And I think that's important because it determines whether you might retreat them with the same regimen versus, you know, if you really thought it was a relapse, you might not do that or you might extend treatment, right? Exactly. So, so your options are to either extend treatment with uh, GP or perhaps go to a triple drug regimen, a, a Sofvalvox kind of regimen for those patients. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. Very interesting. Um, we've now reached the end of our um, day. I would encourage people to look at the information on the screen about claiming your ABIM mock points. Please go to the website and take the 24-hour, the survey within the next 24 hours, and let's see how you do. Hopefully we'll have a better than 33% success rate. Please go to one of our spring update cor courses on the topics that you see listed here and um, also the upcoming webinars, and I highly encourage you, the webinars are very high quality and they're very useful to view the webinars. And in conclusion, uh, oh, and the resources from CROI that we mentioned earlier, the webcast, the posters, the um, booklet of the meeting are all available on the web. Uh, and we mentioned this course earlier today, just a reminder about the new HIV prevention, sexual health, and primary care course coming up later this year. So in conclusion, I'd like to thank my co-chair, Dr. Sag, all of the ex expert speakers that we uh, had here today. I'd like to thank the IES USA, particularly Donna and her colleagues, and I'd like to thank all of you for once again attending, and we'll see you next year. Have a safe drive. Thank you.